All set. All right. First Peter in your Bibles this evening. First Peter chapter two. And we'll pick up our Bible study where we left off with it uh, last week after a short review and a setting in, uh, in context um, what we're looking at and what we're studying. It's always good to provide historical context to help you best understand the passage. And, and, and so I, I try to provide that on Wednesday evenings with the books of the Bible. And I hope that uh, you're appreciative of that and enjoy that. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter 2. And we'll read from 18 down through 25. Beginning in 18, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto uh, were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, uh, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. The Bible study again is titled, A Proper Perspective on Persecution. Let's pray. Lord, tonight help us as we study your word, to understand it and to, be, uh, to grow thereby. And Lord, uh, may our hearts be in tune to not only um, the teaching of your word, but even more importantly, the word itself. Lord, may it change us profoundly. May it be that sword Hebrews 4 talks about that pierces and divides asunder the soul and the spirit and the, the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, Lord, help us tonight to be on point with the teaching and then the reception of it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, there's several of you in here tonight, and this is odd for a Wednesday evening, there's several of you in here tonight that maybe have never heard me preach in person, and, and I would say that um, Wednesdays I teach the Bible, and Sunday evening is probably my, uh, the, the service where I preach the hardest, and so um, um, make sure you get all of it, amen? Don't just come one, one time, uh, but come regularly. But the goal tonight is to help you better understand the Scripture and then challenge you with it. Go back with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1. I want to point something out tonight that I, that, that I uh, uh, discovered or maybe came to the realization of after last Wednesday that, boy, just fits the narrative uh, of, of this really well. Look back at uh, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, look here, to the strangers. You see that word, strangers? I have that word underlined in my Bible, and I'm going to explain why in a minute. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these areas are located in modern-day Turkey. In the Bible, that would have been called Asia Minor. Now, that word, strangers. Um, uh, what Peter is doing right off the bat is he's telling the, the, uh, these, these people that just like Abraham 
was a stranger called out of his land, chosen by God to be the father of a people, a chosen people. You all, the Gentiles in Turkey, modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, you all, the Gentiles, you have been chosen as strangers to not leave uh, a geographical land, but metaphorically leave a land of sin and become a chosen people through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's going to draw on several Old Testament parallels. We began looking at those last week in chapter 2. He's going to draw on several Old Testament parallels and compare them to the children of Israel and show how that they're a new people in Christ. A new people in Christ. So uh, uh, the idea here is a proper perspective on persecution. And the reason for that being is that these churches were being persecuted for what they believed. Now, I want to try to do the best I can to paint a, a picture of what it would have been like to be a Christian during that day, especially a Gentile Christian. And again, uh, I don't want to uh, oversimplify things, but for those that maybe uh, aren't familiar with Jew-Gentile type talk, who was a Gentile? A Gentile is anybody that wasn't a Jew. So uh, anybody in here uh, uh, over 51% Jewish? I'm looking around. Raise your hand if you are. Okay, so we're all Gentiles in here, all right? Uh, so uh, there are Jews, and then there's everybody else, all right? And so these people were Gentiles, and they were being persecuted both uh, politically by the elites uh, because they were not worshiping the false idols and they were not involved in in a lot of those uh, type of things, and they were going against sort of the, the, the cultural trends. But they were also being persecuted by the religious Jews who had out not rejected Jesus. And we're still shoving a Judaism, legalistic, you got to do these sets of works to be saved. And that is the pure definition of legalism. It's attaching works to salvation. And you need to eat kosher meat. You need to uh, uh, honor the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath. You, you need Your males need to be circumcised. And you've got to do these things or uh, you're not going to go to heaven. And so if you were a Gentile in this time, you were being persecuted by the political crowd, by the culture at large, you were also being persecuted by other religious people because you weren't coming in under them. And uh, and on top of that, they didn't have 2,000 years of church precedent to look back at and say, no, we got this thing right. They didn't have commentaries to read uh, that had been produced and put together by men who had time to think this through. No, this was the brand new era of the church and they're still not even sure of who their identity is and what they're supposed to be. And so can you can you sense maybe with me the insecurity that these Gentile Christians would have felt? Boy, the Jews are telling them you're wrong. The political crowd and the culture are telling them you're a bunch of phonies and it's not true and, 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 and you need to cave in and give in to the sinful culture around you. And there was not only verbal persecution, but there even began to be uh, arrests and shutting down of churches and pushing the church underground on some level. Peter, who was a stalwart, stalwart Christian, an apostle uh, who God used to start the church in Jerusalem, after uh, about ten years of being the pastor in Jerusalem, he left to go minister to Gentiles outside of Jerusalem and be their pastor and be their encourager. And God had Peter, 
who was a prominent Jew, write a letter of encouragement to these Gentiles, saying just like the Jews have their exodus, just like the Jews have their call to be holy, and all of these things, hey, you Gentiles, you have the same thing in Christ. And so he is framing their persecution and saying, don't let this discourage you, rather let this challenge you. So let's review real quick. Uh, On the back of your prayer bulletin, you have an outline. And uh, the blanks that we covered last week are filled in. Uh, The ones we haven't got to yet are not. And so, uh, number one, we looked at our inheritance in Christ. Uh, Our inheritance in Christ. And we talked about how that our inheritance, which is salvation, received through uh, putting your faith and trust in Jesus to save you. We talked about its purity, its permanence, its patience, and then uh, our purgings. Number two is where we left off last week, our identity. In Christ, our identity in Christ. Now, I reference this, and again, this is subtle, okay? I don't think I'm grabbing at straws or making anything up because Paul chooses some very uh, specific language that matches up with the Old Testament, and he seems to follow a historical timeline while he's laying this out, alright? So let's review real quick. Letter A, we looked at the comparisons with Israel. He's telling these Gentile Christians, hey, you have things in common with Gentile Christians. He's saying just as though they were redeemed from Egypt, you have been redeemed from sin. Look at chapter 1, verse 13 again. Unto whom it was revealed uh, that not unto themselves, but unto us they administer the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, uh, uh, which things the angels desire to look into. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, last week we turned back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, where the Israelites were told to gird up their loins, gird up their skirt. Basically, that would mean, imagine a woman wearing a long skirt that maybe comes down to the ground. She'd trip over if she's trying to run, and she maybe gets a handful of that skirt and pulls it up a little bit so that she can run more effectively. And back then they wore uh, 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 robes of sorts. Uh, Men didn't wear pants like we do today. And he told them, he said, gird up. Moses told them, gird up your your skirt, gird up your robe, gird up your loins because you're getting ready to leave Egypt, right? This is right before the tenth plague. And here Peter is telling these folks, he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind of your mind. So he's comparing them, uh, he, he is comparing them with Israel and them being redeemed from Egypt. The next comparison he gives here is he, they, uh, these Gentile Christians are called to be holy. Called to be holy. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, where is it written? Well, it's written in Leviticus 11.44. After the Israelites were called out of Egypt, God called them to be holy. Remember? Listen, how holy did the Israelites have to be? It wasn't just a moral holiness. It was all the way down to what they ate. It was down to certain fibers were not allowed to even be in their clothing. You go back and read the Levitical law. Now, those things don't apply to us today, but they were really, really firm on that. God is saying, I don't want your clothing to look like the world. I don't want it to have the same fibers as theirs. Uh, I don't want your, uh, I don't want your talk to sound like the world. I want you to be totally set apart for me. And when anybody sees you, whether it's up close or at a distance, they know that you belong to me. 
Now, an interesting factoid, I preached this in a sermon some time back, but do you know that God had the Israelites formed when they walked through the desert? He had them formed in the shape of a cross. Super fascinating. The way Moses had them laid out around the tabernacle, if you were to go up on a mountain and look down on the Israelites, you were looking down at a million people cross, shaped in a cross. Anybody that wants to deny that there is a God and he has a grand scheme and a plan, this was thousands of years later. Even the way that they looked from a distance said, those folks are different. And Christians, I just want to say this right here, you're not called to be weird, okay? You're not called to walk around and, and act like you're socially inept, all right? But there ought to be something peculiar about the way you live. Your friends say, hey, let's go out and drink. And you say, I don't drink. Your friends say, hey, uh, uh, hey, go, go flirt with that girl over there. You're married, but it's okay. I mean, you're not actually going to do anything with it, right? No, I'm married. I don't do that. I'm a Christian. Uh, hey, how come you never curse? Well, because I'm a Christian. Hey, how come uh, uh, you, don't, you never go watch uh, these R-rated movies with us at the theater? Because I'm a Christian. I'm holy. I'm called out. I'm, I'm supposed to be different. And so just as the Israelis were called to be holy, so were these Gentile Christians. And then uh, the third one we looked at last week, this is what we finished up with, people of the Exodus and Passover. Just as the Israelites were people of the physical exodus, the exiting out of Egypt, and the Passover, the blood that was taken uh, of the hyssop, dipped in the blood of the spotless lamb and put on the doorpost so that when the death angel came through there that uh, the firstborns would not be killed. Hey, listen, you and I, we are children of the exodus. We've left, uh, we've left our sin behind. Not that we won't sin, but we've left a lifestyle of sin behind. We've left the condemnation of sin behind. And we have passed over the death angel has passed over our soul because we are saved. And you can find those accounts in Exodus twelve through fifteen. And so let's move on here. Letter B. Notice the new creation uh, for the church. The new creation for the church. Now uh, Paul's going to, or rather Peter's going to step his game up here with these uh, 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 these Gentiles. And if there was an inferiority complex that they had against their Jewish brethren. Peter was about to say, the church has been made to be better than what they had in the Old Testament. He's going to say, Christ has created some new things that far exceed the symbolism of the Old Testament. And so he takes the next several verses and he outlines what those are. All right, First notice that we have a new covenant. We have a new covenant. Look at chapter 1 verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit uh, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure pure heart fervently. Look at verse 23. Being born again. If you don't know what that means, I would encourage you to go read John chapter 3 where Jesus, Jesus explains that in detail. Being born again. Look here. And notice the covenant here. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the word of God which liveth and abideth Forever, For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, or the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. Look at the end here. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. What is this new covenant? Hey, if you've been born again, you are born of an incorruptible seed. 
You are born of a seed that cannot be tarnished or tainted. Uh, what, what is a covenant? It's basically a commitment, right? It, it, is a, it is a commitment. What did God tell Abraham in Genesis 12? If you get up and leave, I will give you a child, and that child will bring about a people that are so great you can't even... Uh, compare them to the, the stars in the sky. They'll be greater than the stars in the sky and, and the uh, grains of sand on the, uh, on the beach there. And, and, and so what was the covenant made with Abraham? If you go, then this is what you get. What is the covenant made with us? If you believe in Jesus, in Jesus alone, you'll be born again of an incorruptible seed that will never fail. Yes, your flesh is going to die someday, but if you have been born anew in Christ, your soul will live forever with Jesus in heaven. What a covenant, man! Hey, who wants the Old Testament covenant over to the New Testament covenant? The Old Testament covenant, can I just tell you, it just pointed to the New Testament covenant. The Old Testament covenant basically said, uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And through that child, there will be a, a, a Messiah born who will die for the sins of his people, which is the beginning of the New Testament covenant. So the church, listen, we don't need to compare apples to apples. Gentiles with the Jews, church era, uh, church era Jews and Gentiles with the Old Testament Jews. You don't need to compare because you have a new covenant that far exceeds what they had in the Old Testament. But he doesn't stop there. He, uh, uh, this, this Jew, this prominent Jew, uh, Hebrew man Peter, he says to them, not only are you, do you have a new covenant, but you are a new temple, a new temple. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Look here. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings. That's a great thing to do. Uh, Verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now, let me just pause here. I I could preach an entire sermon out of verse 1. And I could preach an entire sermon on verse 2. The purpose of this Bible study is not to dig deep into one verse. The purpose of this Bible study is to give you a bird's eye view of the whole book. All right, So um, we'll get to those another time. Look at verse 3. If so, uh, be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. I'll explain that in a moment. Verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he, Jesus, is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Now, uh, you may have no idea what that means, but let me just quickly explain it to you, alright? In the Old Testament, they had a temple. And in that temple, that was a building that was built, a very large, beautiful, expensive building that was built in Jerusalem. And in that temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, where God Himself dwelt in the midst of his people. That word Sion refers to the city of Jerusalem. Okay, And so in the Old Testament, the Jews had a temple where they would go when they wanted to be close to their God. 
and they wanted to worship their God. Animal sacrifices were made there, and those animal sacrifices pointed to Jesus, who would die on the cross and be the sacrifice and the last uh, sacrifice for our sin. And so these Gentiles, they're looking around and saying, we don't have a temple. They have a temple in the Old Testament, and there's still a temple in Jerusalem. But we don't really have a temple to go to. Can you feel the inferiority complex that we don't have this special, expensive building to go and worship in? And Paul, or Peter here says, no, you don't need to go, you don't need a physical temple, because as a church, you are the new temple. And the cornerstone, the key pillar of that that this, uh, this temple is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is the corner of the New Testament temple or of the church. And then Paul says this, and this is really good here. Paul says that the rest of the foundation of this new temple, of this church, the rest of this foundation is the, the, the apostles that helped found the church and the, the key members of those churches. And then each, each generation provides another layer of the building of that church. We have been handed like a baton. We have been handed the, the New Testament temple and it is our turn in 2019, to be lively stones stacked one upon the other, stacked upon that which has been handed to us in the past, and to be added to the temple, added to this New Testament church. Now, that is a a, a great thing to talk about in theory. Alright, what an exciting thing. Hey, we get to be part of the New Testament temple. Do you know that temple is composed of all of the Bible-believing, church-attending born-again Christians of today. Okay? That's very broad. Do you know that part of that, that layer of this new temple in 2019 is White Oak Baptist Church? Part of White Oak Baptist Church, if you attend here regularly, uh, and those of you who are new to our church are planning on attending here regularly, part of that White Oak Baptist Church is you and me. Are you being pure in your walk with God so that when it's your turn to contribute to this new temple, that this is a brick that is solid in the grand scheme of things? Now, I'm not talking about the way you look and dress and act at church. I'm talking about the way you look, act, dress, behave when no one else is watching. We have a duty here, folks. And, and Peter is saying, don't worry about that temple in Jerusalem. You are the temple. So you, you do your part. 1 Corinthians 6 confirms this as well, doesn't it? You don't have to turn over there right now. But, uh, but they're living a very fornicating and sinful lifestyle in that church. Boy, the church of Corinth was a mess. A total disaster. It was, it was the carnal church in the New Testament. And, and Paul, in an exasperated moment, says, What?! I can almost hear him saying, you bunch of doofuses. Don't you know better? What know ye not? 
that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Ye are not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body and your, uh, and your soul, which are God's. They belong to God. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus. Hey, the Holy Spirit's taking a residence inside of you. That body is part of the temple. And uh, in a micro sense, in a macro sense, we are adding to the New Testament temple of the church. And so let's do a good job. All right, let's move on here. And notice, uh, we are uh, the new kingdom priests. We are the new kingdom priests. Have you noticed that at White Oak Baptist Church, we don't have a priest? You notice my collar is the right direction, not the wrong direction. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed there's no confessional booths around the auditorium? Right? Now, I do have the duty as a pastor that when someone is living in immoral sin, to approach it and confront it and deal with it. That's found in 1 Corinthians. I have to do that. Um, and so, if you're living in immoral sin, you might get approached. It happens from time to time. And if so, we handle that privately and carefully and discreetly. But if you tell a lie, you don't have to come see me. And even if you are living in fornication, uh, you don't have to admit anything to me. Ultimately, you need to confess that to God. Right? And if, if, if there's strong suspicion you're living that way, then between me and the Lord as the pastor, I've got to deal with that. Right? I've got to make a decision on that. But even then, you don't have to come tell me what you did. That's between you and God. The, the great thing is that the confessional booth for the New Testament Christian is wherever you are. You bow your head and you talk to the Lord. You go straight to the, the throne room of God and say, I blew it today. Alright, I'm asking a very personal question. You ready? Participate, please. How many of you think you have committed at least one sin today? Would you raise your hand? At least one. Okay? Some of you just told a lie, and you need to confess that sin. Hey, you don't need to tell me or anybody else, but you do need to confess that to the Lord. You make sure you keep that record clean. Uh, look at, um, and I love this passage, all right? Uh, and any time I'm t- talking to a Catholic priest, I take them to First Peter 2, and I show them these verses, and I say, can you please explain this to me? And they don't like that very much, all right? Look at verse 9, First Peter 2, 9. But ye, and again, the letter is written to all the Christians in these churches. Ye, that word ye is a plural pronoun, meaning all of you. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which hath not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So who is the, the, the priesthood, or what is the priesthood? It's everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus to save them. You are the priest. You are the priest. You are your own priest with God, meaning you don't need a mediator. To take, you, to, 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 to take your problems to God. You are the mediator. You go to God on your knees. And, and truthfully, if you want to get really technical, uh, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. But you don't, need, you don't need a man to be a mediator for you. You go to Jesus with your needs and, 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 uh, and your confessing of your sins. So Paul is saying to this, uh, these, these folks, yes, you're being persecuted. And yes, you might have an inferiority complex because you're not Jew and you're Gentile. But you need to find confidence 
And again, the head, the head point here, in your identity in Christ. Let's move on, number three, and notice our influence for Christ. Our influence for Christ. Now, Paul is going to turn his attention uh, to uh, that, uh, the, the testimony of the believer. And how that our testimony, when it's kept right, boy, it can make a difference. And I don't know that um, uh, any part, portion of the book is any more valid than what we're going to cover right now in 2019. Letter A, notice our role as citizens. Our role as citizens. And that word citizens there is not a reference to our heavenly citizenship, but that of, uh, of, of, uh, of an earthly citizenship. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, look here, abstain from fleshly lusts. Abstaining, stay away from, run away from, which war against the soul. So you have a portion of you that wants to do right, and you have a portion of you that wants to do wrong. Run from that which is wrong, run to that which is right. Verse 12, having your conversation... And again, anytime you see the word conversation in the Bible, it means lifestyle. Or not, Every time I am aware of, but if not all the time, most every time. Having your lifestyle or your conversation honest among the Gentiles, those are those around you, your peers, whereas they speak against you as evildoers. They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what that verse means? There are going to be people that try to besmirge your name. Run down your reputation. Live your life in such a way where you, your life proves their lies about you wrong. Anybody in here ever had, uh, anybody in here ever been gossiped about? Found out someone was talking about you behind your back and saying things that weren't true? Yeah, I saw one hand. I think that's probably happened to all of us, hasn't it? Yeah? Is it, does, that, does, that ever get, does that ever get you worked up when someone does that to you? Can I tell you, it really shouldn't. If you, if you just live your life, people figure things out. People figure things out. I've had my name run down plenty of times. And, and sometimes some things that people have said to me have had a, a little bit of truth to it. I'm not perfect. I've got flaws. And, and if you look hard enough, you can find them. You probably don't even have to look that hard. You can find them. And you want to walk around and talk bad about me, you, you probably could do it and, and not be totally lying. Um, but you know what? I can't be concerned with what you say. I can only be concerned about how I live. And so when people run you down, okay. You know what you do? You get up the next day and you keep going. And, you, and, and if, there are any, if there's any truth to what they're saying, then you, you take that as correction and admonishment from God and you fix it. You work to fix it. And you know what? The other thing that ruins people is compliments. Someone pays you a big compliment, don't let that go to your head. You're a sinner saved by grace. Right? You know what you are? You're the same thing I am. You're a ball of dirt. What, what good are we? Anything that's good in me is because of him, not because of me. Right? There is that dwelleth within me no good thing. And you either. And so uh, verse 12 is saying here, hey, live an honest lifestyle. And when people gossip about you, prove wrong with the way you live. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Those are the, the laws on the books. For the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or in a governor's, lower level government, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers 
and the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well uh, uh, doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolishness, 2.16, as free and not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. And then verse 17 kind of sums it all up. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, those are your Christian, Christian brethren, fear God, honor the king. You know what we don't need to be doing? Running around complaining about our politicians. Some Christians, and I've been guilty of this, some Christians are so consumed with the political world, I mean, they listen to nine hours of talk, conservative talk radio a day. They listen to three hours of Rush, three hours of, um, uh, of Sean, and then three hours of either Glenn Beck or, or maybe Ben Shapiro or, I don't know, pick the, pick the, pick the talking head, Mark Levin, whoever it is. And, and, and they know more about what's going on in the political landscape than they do in the Bible. You know what we got to do? we got to live our lives to honor the Lord. And when it comes to politicians, listen, Christians need to be involved in politics. You need to know how to vote, and you ought to vote accordingly. And, and listen, there's never been more of a time of a struggle of right and wrong, morally speaking, in our country, especially on the political landscape, when one political party has part of their platform that murdering babies in the womb is okay. That's written in their platform. Now, I don't dabble in politics a lot, but I'm going to say that you need to get out and do your part to vote. But running down a politician on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, or, or buying out a newspaper article and typing all that up, we have a responsibility to pray for these people. Honor the king. You say, what if the king's wicked? Do you know when this was written, do you know who the king was? It was the man that chopped Paul's head off. And Peter said, honor the king. Honor the king. I've got to tell you, sometimes that's not easy, is it? I haven't agreed with every president we've had. In fact, the one we have, there's a whole lot of things he does I just really don't care for. His demeanor could be a lot better. But you know what? We're to pray for him. We're to honor him. If you look at our prayer bulletin on the inside of there, you'll find our president's name listed to pray for him. Do you know that when I got here to be the pastor, Barack Obama was the president? And you know what? His name was listed too. And we prayed for him almost every week. And we didn't pray for God to strike him down with lightning. We prayed that God would, would bless him and that God would help him to see the truth and have wisdom to make right decisions. That's our duty. Did I chase a rabbit right there? Was that too much preaching on a Wednesday night? Is everybody okay? Everybody take a deep breath. All right? I love all of you. I promise. All right. Um, our role as citizens. It isn't to... Uh, it, 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 listen, uh, take a stand against wrong in the voting booth and in the influence you have with your family, but let's make sure we keep that in proper perspective. Let her be our ridicule from the culture. Our ridicule from the culture. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your master with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye, have been, uh, when ye be buffeted or beat up, uh, uh, by uh, for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You know what this means? When you're mistreated by the culture at large, take it patiently. Take it patiently. Uh, here, these folks are being physically assaulted for what they believe. They were under Roman rule. 
And the Romans would, would, would torture them and beat them and tell, tell them to, to carry my sack a mile and, and do as I say when I say to do it. And here he said, you're going to get ridiculed if you fight back. That doesn't honor the law of Christ. What did Jesus say? If someone smites you on the cheek, what did he say? Turn the other. He didn't say punch him back, did he? Right? We tell our kids, you don't start a fight, but you sure finish it. And that's not really biblical. <laughs> Biblically, we're supposed to turn the other cheek. I must confess, I have told my son that before, so don't mess with my son. Amen? Um, um, uh, but no, I, I, I'm being semi-facetious there. We, we are going to get needled and ribbed and picked on at best at this point in our American culture for our faith. Occasionally, you'll read a story about somebody getting locked up for their faith. It happens occasionally in some really... Uh, wackadoodle political parts of our country, uh, but for the most part, you're not going to get, you're not going to face any serious persecution. This isn't Syria where they behead Christians. Do we understand that? But if that day comes, we need to make sure that we stand firm in our faith. Let her see our role model. Our role model is Christ. So our our role as citizens, our ridicule from the culture, our role model is Christ. You know what Jesus did when he was attacked? He opened not his mouth. The Bible says he was like a lamb led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53. He was reviled and persecuted. He didn't fight back. He didn't fight back. Look at, uh, look at, what, Paul, or look at what Peter is saying here. He's telling these Gentile Christians, when you're mistreated by those that have authority over you, endure it patiently, just like your Savior did. Look at verse 21. For even here in two were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. Hey, look to your Savior who has saved you and do it like He did it, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in His mouth. He wasn't running His mouth and running people down who were running Him down. There was no guile in His mouth who when He was reviled, reviled not again, When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What's that mean? Jesus said, these people are mistreating me, but I'm going to commit myself to the judge of heaven, God the Father, and I'm going to let him punish those that are over me in authority who are mistreating me. That is the way this is supposed to go. Look at verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead as sins should live in a righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. For, uh, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I think of that passage in John 15 where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, listen, uh, uh, you're not better than your leader. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so if you are persecuted for your faith, Peter's telling these Christians, remember who your Savior is. And you follow in his steps. Our influence for Christ. You know what the greatest message you can preach with your, with your lifestyle? The greatest message you can preach is one of Christian deference. Where you can take persecution and show love. When you absorb the world's hate and turn around and love them anyway, you know what that does? That blows them away. They are blown away from that. Christians, we don't fight hate with hate. We fight hate with love. We fight hate with love. You, you've got to be careful with 
the spirit in which you approach someone who is um, being antagonistic. Part of what drives me nuts about the society at large is the stigma and the label that Christians get. We are labeled as bigoted, intolerant, hateful, nasty extremists. Right? It's our label. Even the mic's picking on me tonight. I don't want to do anything to fuel that and make people think that that's accurate. I can hate sin and not hate the sinner. I can take the abuse that comes from those who are shoving a, a immoral lifestyle on me and trying to make me feel like I've got to either celebrate it or be condemned. And I can take that and say, I'm not going to celebrate your lifestyle, but I am going to love you. I am going to show you the love of Christ like my Savior did. I'm not going to revile you. There's no guile is going to be found in my mouth or in my spirit. Number four, notice our intentionality in Christ. Our intentionality. Can I tell you tonight that to be a Christian in the face of persecution, you've got to do it on purpose. You've got to do it intentionally. It doesn't happen on accident. It happens on purpose. Because it's a choice. You're making a bold choice to take a stand for the Lord. And as the... As the moral, uh, as our moral compass grows further away from our God uh, and from our Bible, from our Judeo-Christian heritage, the darker it's going to get for all of us. America is going to have to either return back to its roots soon, or we're a lost cause for good. Satan won a battle a long time ago in this country when he separated morality from the God of morality. And he got people to start doing right for right's sake instead of because thus saith the Lord. And as, as people's opinion on morality changes and evolves, then you end up in a land of judges. Anybody ever read through the book of Judges? Some weird stuff in Judges, isn't there? If you want to read the weirdest book in the Bible, go read the book of Judges. There's some weird, weird stuff in Judges. You know why it's so weird? The Bible tells us twice in the book. In the beginning and the end. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They did what they thought was moral. But they left the God of morality out. And they got to some pretty strange places as a people. That's where we're going as a country. And so if you're going to choose to hold yourself to the morality of the Bible, it is a a choice of intentionality. It is an intentional choice to go counter to the culture, to be peculiar to the world at large, and say, I'm going to do it with a gracious spirit, but I'm not going to budge. I'm going to have a backbone of steel. Letter A, notice, a choice to suffer. A choice to suffer. If you're going to take a stand for Christ, I promise you at some point, there's going, to be, there's going to be some pain involved. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love his brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Can I sum up verse 8 real quick? You, Christian, are not my enemy. I am not your enemy. Now, I may say things that you don't like sometimes. I may confront sin sometimes either generically or one-on-one, toe-to-toe with you. I'm not your enemy. You know who the enemy is? Satan's the enemy. 
The last thing we need to do is come to church and fight with each other. You want to fight with someone? Go punch the devil in the eye by the way you live. That's who, that's who the enemy is. And Paul is saying here, when you come to church, be courteous. Love the brethren. Don't come with a spirit of animosity. Verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but count, uh, contrary-wise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. We looked at the inheritance last week in chapter 1. For he uh, that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips uh, that they speak no guile. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. You know what I'm getting out of this? Is that uh, you're going to suffer. Don't lash out. Don't fight back. Let God fight for you. He's going to listen to your prayer when you call out, and He's going to turn His face against those that are evil. Verse 14, But and, but and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. You know what verse 14 reminds me of? Matthew five eleven and 12. Blessed are you, and men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so persecuted were the prophets that were before you. Hey, if you suffer for the name of Christ, you're persecuted for your faith, and you have a positive disposition, but people are hammering you for what you believe. Hey, rejoice. You know why you should rejoice? Because you're in the same camp as your Savior who suffered as well. I think about Andrew who was led away to be nailed to an X-shaped cross. History books tell us that he was rejoicing on his way to death because he got to die the same type of death as his Savior. A choice to suffer. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do this thing and be a true blue Christian, not a Joel Olstein Christian, not a convenient Christian, not go to a church where the preacher just tickles the back of your ear and makes you feel good about yourself, you can make it one more week. You can do it. You want to go to a church like that, then you're choosing to have a lukewarm Christianity. Listen, you're choosing not to suffer. To be a Christian in a culture that is counter to Christ, you're going to have to make a choice to suffer. I'm going to leave the verses, uh, the verses that are on your bulletin, and I would encourage you to go study that in greater depth there in the rest of those passages. Quickly, letter B, notice, a choice of symbolism. A choice of symbolism. Now, I'm going to try to quickly draw this up. Jesus is, Jesus suffers. Jesus suffers for his stance in the world. He's looked down by the religious crowd. He's looked down by the, the Roman government. And eventually, he, in their nastiness toward him, he dies. And over here, Philippians 2 gives us the whole runaround, right? That because he suffered, now he reigns supreme. You can study Philippians 2 about that. In the middle here, we have a story about baptism. Now, this seems like a weird place to put baptism. But once you understand what baptism is really all about, maybe it isn't so weird. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Which sometimes were dis disobedient when once the long-suffering God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure uh, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Now look here, for anyone that believes in baptismal regeneration, look at the parentheses. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So what is baptism? It's a symbol. Now, uh, I, I, I think for a lot of my Christian life, I have 
I have not gone and been thorough enough with my teaching of baptism. Baptism is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But when a person chooses to be baptized, not only are they choosing to identify with Christ, they're also making a commitment to God to live a new lifestyle. That's very important. You don't need to just get baptized and and jump in that baptistry pool and say, okay, hey, I feel good about myself. When you walk out of that baptistry pool, there needs to be a larger commitment to living like Christ. That's why we say, buried in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life. You're going to go out and be a new creature. So when you get baptized, there needs to be a commitment that you're going to suffer for the Savior if necessary. Let me move through these quickly so we can finish up the, um, the Bible study here and we can get into Second Peter next week. Let her see a choice of sanctification. A choice of sanctification. Now, Paul takes their suffering and he says to them that your suffering brings about sanctification. Now, how many of you tonight, if I passed around a clipboard around the auditorium and were to go through all your hands, and at the top it said, sign up if you want to suffer in the next week. Anybody here put their name on the checkboard on the, on the board? I, I wouldn't. <laughs> sign up to go through a trial. We need volunteers to go through trials. None of us are going to sign up for that. Can I tell you that early in my Christian life, adult Christian life, I was like, God, why are you making me suffer? But now when problems come in my life, I say, God, thank you. I wouldn't have volunteered for this, but I'm thankful for it. Because you are turning up the fire of problems in my heart and you're bringing to the top, you're bringing to the top all of the imperfections of my life so that I can be a pure Christian. That's why we suffer. So that we can be sanctified. That word sanctified means to, to be made like Christ. Letter D, a choice to shepherd, a choice to shepherd. Quickly, look at me at chapter 5, verse 1. The elders, and there's three words that describe the position of the lead pastor of the church. That's bishop, elders, and pastor. Okay, So when you see the word elders, you can exchange the word for pastor there. It means the same idea. The elders which are among you, I exhort, with, with, with uh, who am also an elder, and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Look here. Feed the flock of God which is among you. Take the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples or examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And so he's saying here uh, that those, those Christians that are suffering, those sheep in the flock that are suffering, they need you pastors, you elders, to help get them through those difficult times. And so for that, God gives us pastors and shepherds. And I've got to tell you, even I have a man in the ministry that I call my pastor, that I run to in time of spiritual need. We all need a, a shepherd. We all need a, a, a man to help lead us and guide us. And I, I covet your prayers that I would do that in a way that is honoring to the Lord here at White Oak Baptist Church. Uh, so the challenge tonight is this. You're going to suffer for the Lord from time to time. And I believe the further we get away from, further we get away, or the, rather the closer we get to the coming back of the Lord, the greater we're going to suffer. When you suffer, take it like Christ did. Let that purify you. Let that make you more like your Savior. Let's stand together tonight to be dismissed in prayer.
take those verses. I gave you a lot of cross-references on, that, uh, on the back of that paper we didn't get into tonight. But take those and do your own Bible study and, and let the book of 1 Peter really speak to you on an even deeper level than we got into tonight. A lot there. Well, thank you for being here tonight. To those of you that are visiting uh, with us or uh, haven't been here in a while, thank you for coming. We hope that you enjoyed the service. You were moved by the message and the prayer time. And if you have any questions, I'll hang around for a bit. I'd love to get a chance to chat with you. Jason Magnarella, why don't you close us in prayer?